One day, quite by accident, I had the opportunity to meet an elderly lady by the name of Evelyn. I later learned she was the grandmother of a very dear friend of mine. And Evelyn told me this incident in her life. She said she visited a church for the very first time, and after the service, she met the pastor. After exchanging greetings, the pastor asked her a question that Evelyn had really never heard before. He said to her, are you saved? She responded, well, I've been confirmed. And he said, oh no, he said, that's not what I mean. Now that really offended her. She felt insulted and she left the church very upset. She thought, why the nerve of him to suggest that a confirmed church member might not be a Christian. And she left angry, never planning to come back to that church again. You know what's interesting? When I met her years later, she had gone back to that church. In fact, she had gone back very enthusiastically. And you say... What happened? What changed? Well, here's what changed. Evelyn discovered that she was religious, yet lost. If I were to ask this morning, how many of you were that way? I'll bet you all over our auditorium and in our second service, many hands would go up. You know, that was true of me. I was a baptized member of my church, but I was lost. And just like Evelyn, I discovered that when I was a teenager, had I not learned it, I would still be lost to this very day. Uh, perhaps many of us know this uh, man, this was Billy Sunday. And Billy Sunday had a knack for making striking statements that no one could ever forget. And on one occasion, Billy Sunday had this to say. He said, going to church doesn't make you a Christian any more than going to a garage makes you an automobile. And that's not only humorous and arresting, but it really makes the point very effectively. You see, religion cannot make you a Christian. Only Jesus can do that. But here's the problem. People think religion can, and that's why it is so very dangerous. Now today, in our study in the book of Romans, Paul, the apostle who wrote Romans under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, wants to teach us two things. Number one, the danger of religion alone and then secondly, he wants us to see the remedy of religion alone. It's that remedy that Evelyn discovered, and it's the remedy that I discovered and many of us here have discovered. Now, if anyone in the first century was religious and lost, it was many Jewish people. They had the world's greatest religion, Judaism. They took great pride in saying, we are God's chosen people. And they would have said this, what do you mean we're lost without Christ? We're religious. 
We're fine. Go talk to someone else. And so this morning, let's notice how the Apostle Paul tried to help them. As we look at the danger of religion alone, and then we'll look at the remedy together. Would you take your Bibles and turn with me to Romans chapter 2? And we're going to begin at verse 17, and I want you to bow with me as we ask the Lord to be our teacher and guide. Let's pray together. Oh Lord God, probably no more important sermon could ever be preached than this sermon. You know the tendency of all of us to take refuge in our own goodness, to take refuge in the rites and ceremonies of the church, to cloak ourselves in religion. And yet all the while, to be desperately lost. So many all around us are in this state. Maybe some here today. Speak to our hearts now through your word. For Jesus' sake. Amen. I want you to notice as we begin verse 17 that the first danger of religion is to have a full head but an untouched heart. Now notice what Paul says in verse 17. He says, but if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God and know His will and approve what is excellent because you are instructed from the law. Now in these two verses and the next two, Paul makes eight claims for the Jewish people. Do you know what? In their literature, they would have claimed the very same eight things for themselves. And I want you to notice the first major claim that they had was the law of Moses, and they knew God's will. If you look at verse 18 where it says, they knew His will, literally in the original language, it is they knew the will. God's absolute will, which is above all other wills. So the Jews had a knowledge of God's plan, of His purpose, and of His will like no one else. You know, every Saturday they went to the synagogue for instruction in the Holy Torah. And from childhood, the synagogue was their training schools. They were far advanced above all of the Gentiles. But did you notice the fatal flaw here? Did you notice this? For many, it was all in their heads, and their hearts remained untouched. Did you notice the emphasis here on the intellectual alone? Paul says they knew his will. They approved what is excellent. They were instructed from the law. That's all intellectual, isn't it? It's all about what they knew. In fact, notice he says in verse 17... They relied on the law. The word rely there means to put one's trust in. Do you see what it's saying? They put their trust in the law. What was the danger? 
The danger was they put the law of God in place of God Himself. They substituted the knowledge of the law in place of a heart relationship with the very giver of the law. I've often said this uh, from this pulpit with sadness in my heart. Many people will miss heaven by 18 inches. And this morning I took out a tape measure and I measured from the top of my head to my heart. And it is exactly 18 inches. And here's the great danger in religion. Because we know the truth, we assume we know Christ. And what can happen is we can trust what we know instead of putting our trust in Christ Himself. See, our heads can be full while our hearts remain untouched and unchanged by Jesus. I love this book as much as anybody does. And I try to study it as much as I can. But this book is not an end in itself, is it? This book is a means to an end. This book is to lead us to salvation in Jesus Christ by a heart relationship with Him. And if it ever becomes an end in itself, or my religion becomes an end in itself, I will end up with a full head, but a heart that has never been touched. And that's a danger, isn't it? That's a danger. Now notice the second danger this can lead to. Number two, the Jews were brimming with self-confidence. Look at verse 19. And if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth. Now, all of these statements here are found in the Old Testament about what the Jews were to be towards the Gentiles. In fact, look at what the Apostle Paul says here. The Old Testament said the Jews were to be to the Gentiles. By the way, most of us are Gentiles here today. Look at the category we're in. Not a whole lot to take pride in, is it? But look at what he says. The Jews were a guide, they were a light, an instructor, a teacher found all throughout the Old Testament, they were to be, and the Gentiles were blind, in darkness, foolish, and they were children. Now you know what happened for many, many Jews, instead of being humbled by these great privileges, they grew proud. And they became terribly, terribly self-righteous and condemning. You say to me, Pastor, how self-righteous? Well, this is one thing that I read in the city of Alexandria. The Jews actually took an oath, allegedly, to never show kindness to a Gentile. Can you imagine that? That is self-righteous. 
This is what you're supposed to be, but it went to your heads in such a way that you thought, we'll never show kindness to those Gentiles. Listen very carefully. Whenever religion teaches us to be confident in ourselves or our works, that's bad religion. Let me say that again. Whenever our religion teaches us to be confident in ourselves or in our works, that is bad religion. The Apostle Paul will say just a few chapters later in Romans 7:18, I know that in me dwells no good thing that is in my flesh. And Jesus said this in John 5:42, he said, I know that the love of God does not dwell in you. And there is not a single thing that should ever lead us to spiritual self-confidence. If that ever happens, we are in danger of having religion alone. Pastor Kent Hughes, uh, who used to pastor College Avenue Church in Wheaton, Illinois, who's preached some wonderful sermons on Romans, had this to say, listen to this. Whenever a follower of Christ feels superior, he should beware. For such an attitude is not a sign of God's grace. To come into a position of spiritual privilege only to succumb to self-righteous arrogance indicates one's soul is in great danger. Think of that. Think of that this morning. Religion can put our soul in great danger if it leads us to be brimming with our own self-confidence. Now when that happens, a third danger will often take place. And that third danger is this. We will ignore obvious hypocrisy. You see, follow this. Our head is full, but our heart is untouched. The result is, we are brimming with our own self-confidence. And what it will lead to, mark these words from Paul... It will lead to ignoring obvious hypocrisy. Look at verse 21. You then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, dishonor God by breaking the law. For as it is written in your own scriptures, Isaiah 52.5, the name of God is blasphemed amongst the Gentiles because of you. Now I could just hear somebody this morning say, Pastor Brian, Did the Jews really commit these sins? Stealing? Adultery? Robbing temples? 
Well, in the first century, at the very time the Apostle Paul was writing these words, there was a rabbi by the name of Jochanan ben Zakkai. And Jochanan ben Zabbai, a rabbi of the Jews, was writing these words. Listen to what he wrote. He bewailed in his day the increase of murder, adultery, sexual vice, commercial and judicial corruption, bitter sectarian strife, and other evils among the Jews. What the Apostle Paul wrote right here, their own rabbis said, yeah, we know that's happening. But then I want you to think about what Jesus said. Jesus said that we can do these things as He taught in the Sermon on the Mount in our hearts. So we may not steal, but we can covet what others have, always wanting more. He said we may not commit literal adultery, but we can lust in our hearts wanting to, even though we haven't. And we may not worship idols, But we all know we can make ourselves an idol or the things that we possess into our gods. Have you ever asked yourself this question? Which are the worst sins? The sins of the flesh or the sins of the Spirit? You ever wondered about that? Which are the ones that are worse? The things that he lists here, adultery, stealing, idolatry, or pride, selfishness, and others? Well, I want you to look at what one famous Christian leader had to say in his answer. As I read what he said, you think about who was this that said this. Let me read it for you. The sins of the flesh are bad, but they are the least bad of all sins. All the worst pleasures are purely spiritual. The pleasure of putting other people in the wrong, of bossing and patronizing, and being a spoiled sport, and backbiting, The pleasures of power, of hatred. That is why a cold, self-righteous prig who goes regularly to church may be far nearer to hell than a prostitute. And if you guessed it was C.S. Lewis who said that in Mere Christianity, you are right. You know who else said this? Jesus did, didn't he? To the self-righteous people of his day, the religious people, he said, the prostitutes and tax gatherers will get into the kingdom of heaven ahead of you. You see, the truth of the matter is, we are all hypocrites in one way or another, are we not? Are we not? 
You see, I, I say that I love my wife, but sometimes my impatient words, not very loving, are they? I say that God is number one in my life, but often he's number two and number three. And I would agree wholeheartedly, I'm supposed to love my neighbor exactly as I love myself, but you know what the truth is? I often love my neighbor a lot less than I love myself. That's the truth. And you see, here's the problem with religion. It constantly is looking at our good side. Tell me the good side. Tell me how great I am. Tell me how wonderful I am. And all those hypocrisies that I just mentioned, let's just ignore those. Let's pretend they don't really happen. That's religion. If you prayed for my ministry last Sunday night at the prison, I want to thank you very much. After the first service, a young man came to me weeping. Tears just flowing down his face as he poured out his heart to me. It's the first time in ten years at the prison I've seen anyone weeping. I'll be honest with you, I didn't know what to do. But I knew one thing I shouldn't do, and that is talk. I needed to let him weep. And I put my hand on his shoulder as he poured out his heart to me. He was clutching his Bible. I won't tell you what he told me he did. It's ugly. It's very ugly. But my sin is ugly, isn't it? And your sin is ugly. How could any sin not be ugly to a holy God? And this is what I hoped. I hoped as those tears flowed that it was revealing true brokenness. Because if true brokenness was happening in that prisoner, first time ever in chapel, then Jesus can do something for it. And I've prayed. Lord, next month bring him back. I said, I'll be back next month. He said, I'll be back. Lord, may true Brokenness be happening. 
Now you see, when, when we begin to see our ways and selves in which the way Paul is describing the Jews here, then we're ready for the remedy. And I love in this passage how Paul goes from the problem to the remedy. And I want to take you to the remedy for religion. Let's look at it together, all right? Here's what you need. Here's what I need. Number one, we need what the ceremonies teach. We need what the ceremonies teach. Look at verse 25. For circumcision indeed is of value if you obey the law. But if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. Now the Jews not only took great stock in having the law, but they took tremendous, tremendous stock in circumcision. That was the sign that you were a descendant of Abraham or you belonged to the people of God if you were a female in the nation of Israel. Do you know what the Jewish people actually believed? If they were circumcised or a part of a circumcised people, they were saved from eternity, for eternity. Listen to what some of their rabbis said. Circumcision saves from hell. All Israelites have a share in the world to come. One rabbi actually said that Abraham sits at the gates of hell and he will not allow any circumcised person to enter hell. Now, do you see the problem here? They were trusting in a religious right. Why did God command circumcision to Abraham to begin with? Well, let me share it with you. It was a sign of purity and separation from sin. You all know what happens to a piece of flesh when it is cut away from the body. That flesh very, very quickly begins to rot, become putrid, and foul. And so what they were to do was to cast away the foreskin that had been cut away because very, very soon it would become corrupted flesh. You know what God was teaching the Jewish people through the rite of circumcision? That they needed to be separated from the inner sinfulness of their own hearts. Mark that down. That's what the sign was teaching. You have a sinful, corrupt heart, and you must be separated from that impurity if you're going to be accepted by a holy God. Now, how many of them could separate? themselves from that sin. None of them could. So God was saying that can only happen when you put your trust in me. Look what Jeremiah the prophet said to the people of his day. Jeremiah 13:23. Can the Ethiopian change his skin or the leopard his spots? Then may you also do good that are accustomed to do evil. Anybody here this morning think that this leopard can change its spots? Anybody? You know why not? Because spots are a very part of the nature of a leopard. 
And a leopard can't change its nature. And God was saying to his people, sin is a very part of your fallen nature. You cannot change it yourself. And therefore, as a result, you need me to change your hearts. You see, the Jews needed what circumcision signified, cleansing and changing of their hearts from sin. Now let me just ask you this morning, what does baptism signify? A washing away of sin. And water can never do that. Only Jesus Christ can do that. What does communion signify? It signifies that we need to receive Jesus into our lives by faith. And taking a wafer and eating it can never bring Jesus Christ into our hearts to change our lives. What is boring, being born into a Christian family all about? It's all about a privilege. I know people that are raised to think if you're born into a Christian family, you're under the covenant of grace, and as a result, your salvation is almost guaranteed. Yet, what is being born into a Christian family really all about? God has no grandchildren, does He? My parents were born again. I need to be born again. And what is confirmation all about? What is that ceremony that someone might do for us in a church? Well, it's confirming a prior decision to trust in Christ as Lord and Savior. And someone can confirm us all day long. But they cannot make us somebody who trusts in Christ. You see, what the Bible is saying is we have to have personally what the ceremonies are teaching us. Look at the second remedy, number two. Ceremonies alone cannot deliver from judgment. Look at verse 26. So if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code and circumcision, but you break the law. Do you know the Jews would have been profoundly shocked by this statement? They would have said in response to the Apostle Paul, you mean our circumcision doesn't guarantee that we are going to get into heaven? And they would immediately say, why? Look at the answer that Paul gives in another place in Galatians 5.3 which is the answer to the shock that they would have had. Let's read together Galatians 5.3. Join me. Again, I declare to every man who lets himself be circumcised that he is obligated to obey the whole law. Now look at that. Clearly it's not talking about circumcision for health purposes. 
We circumcise today because it's a healthy thing to do. But he's talking about it as adopting it as a spiritual rite, a ceremony that you then trust to be right with God. So the idea here is exactly what many Jews would do. They would trust in their religion and their rites. But notice what he says, since circumcision is commanded by the law, if you're going to trust in a right in the law, then how much of the law do you have to do? All of it. All of it. You have to render a perfect obedience. And since no one can perfectly obey the whole law, we are all under the sentence of judgment. No amount of baptism, church membership, communion, confirmation, religious heritage, can avail. Sadly, a man just a few weeks ago who has no interest in Christ said, I recently found my baptismal certificate when I was baptized as a boy. He said, maybe I should frame it. And that baptismal certificate will do no good. No good. Now notice the third remedy. The Holy Spirit alone can change our hearts. Look at verse 28. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly. And circumcision is a matter of the heart by the Spirit. It's not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. Do you know God had always taught His people this truth? Look at how he taught it in Deuteronomy 30 and verse 6. Read this with me. This is from the very beginning. God taught his people this truth. Let's read it together. Moreover, the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your descendants to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul so that you may live. What does the word circumcise of the heart here mean except to change the heart and to cleanse the heart? And what is God saying? He must do it. And then as you go a little further along in the Old Testament, you discover that when God promised He would send Jesus, Jesus would do this very thing for all who would come to Him. Look at what the prophet Ezekiel had to say in Ezekiel 36, 26, and 27. Look what He promised when Jesus would come. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. 
And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. This is what Jesus meant when he said you must be born again. He meant the Holy Spirit must apply the salvation of Christ to our hearts and cleanse us and then change us. Take the rebellious heart out and give to us a heart that longs to live for God. And Jesus said this is the only way that we can ever enter into God's kingdom. He said you must be born again. You remember Evelyn? That elderly lady who I later found out was the grandmother of a friend of mine. Remember how upset she was? That someone would suggest that maybe a confirmed church member was not a Christian? She was furious all that week, she told me. But then she began to say to herself, wait a minute. Why am I so upset? If I am really a Christian, there's no reason to be upset. After all, it was just a simple question. She started doing some soul searching. And guess what she discovered? She was religious, but lost. She was a confirmed church member who was lost. She had religion. She did not have Christ. And she turned to Jesus in repentance and faith. She was born again. She was wonderfully transformed. And that church she vowed she'd never go to again. She enthusiastically went back to. That's what you need. That's what I need. The Apostle Paul says the only thing that matters is a new creation. And that's what Jesus came to bring. Let's bow our hearts together. And let's close our eyes. Just before we sing and our service is entered, what about you? Do you really have Christ? Have you really been born again? Have you seen the ugliness of your sin?
and recognize no amount of rituals, no amount of practices, no amount of your own self-righteousness will ever make you right with God. And if you depend on those things, you'll be shocked when Jesus says, depart from me. I never knew you. And you need to come to Him now. Just say, Lord, I repent. I repent of my trust in my goodness. I repent of my religiosity. I repent of the things that I think make me better than others. And I fall at your cross. I need what your blood and your blood alone can do. Wash my heart. I need what your spirit can only accomplish to change me on the inside. And today I come for that. I throw myself at your mercy. Lord Jesus, save me, forgive me, make me a child of God. I believe who you are and what you've done. And now from this day forward, with you living within me, I will follow you and live for you. Oh, Lord Jesus, thank you. Father, speak to all of our hearts today. Draw us to the Savior. May we love and adore Him more and more for what He has done. In His name, Amen.